Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. I'm John Perrine, and today we're on episode 7 of our study of Revelation called The Politics of Jesus. If you've been journeying with us, it has been a whirlwind of sights and sounds, images and visions, signs and symbols, all offering direction for how to live the politics of Jesus in a world dominated by the politics of Caesar. Today we've come to Revelation 16 to 18, where we're going to look at the seven woes, Babylon the prostitute, and the funeral dirge of lament over the fall of Babylon. In a way, this is the devastating finale to the outpouring of God's judgment and wrath and brings home why, in the key of a thundering prophetic lament, why God has acted and will act against Babylon, against Rome, against any earthly city that sets itself against God. That's why this episode, I want to talk about the political power of prophetic lament, where God's people hold to account and cry out against the injustices in our world. So let's dive in. So in the year 1963, a horrific event would catapult once more the urgent issue of civil rights onto the national stage. And this event would become the major driving force in the legislation that would soon be enacted. Yet for such a movement to occur politically, first, tragedy ensued. The date was September 15th, a Sunday in Birmingham, Alabama. It had been four weeks since the beginning of the school year, which had officially desegregated schools, and four bombings had already taken place in Birmingham. 16th Street Baptist was a three-story church in the heart of Birmingham that had been a rallying point for civil rights activities. The church had been receiving telephone threats since the previous May, and just the Sunday before, a telephone bomb threat caused four members of the church to stand guard through the night before the Sunday service, only to have nothing materialize. Yet on this Sunday, September 15th, there was no warning. A church secretary reported that the phone rang several times, but each time they picked up, no one was on the line. Around 2 a.m. in the morning, a Ku Klux Klan member named Bobby Sherry planted 19 sticks of dynamite under the east side stairs near the basement wall of the church. He likely had a couple of accomplices from the local Klan chapter who were his getaway drivers. At 10 a.m., three young girls, all aged 14, left their Sunday school class early to join two others in the basement lounge in order to primp for their roles as ushers for the church's youth day service. At approximately 10.22, members of the church heard a distinct click, followed by a massive explosion. The bomb collapsed part of the east side basement wall and main floor. Chaos immediately ensued. Out of the ashes and the rubble, 22 church members were injured, yet it was four of the five girls who were found dead. A.D. Collin was aged 14. Carol Robertson was age 14, Cynthia Wesley was age 14, and Denise McNair was aged only 11. If you search online for the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, you can see their pictures. These girls were young, innocent, and full of life that had barely begun before it was cruelly and unexpectedly taken from them. The explosion blew a large hole in the church's sidewall that would take years to repair. But especially notable, 16th Street Baptist was known for its beautiful arrangement of stained glass windows, and all but one were completely shattered. Incredibly, however, 
The one surviving panel of stained glass depicted Jesus surrounded by children. And in that stained glass window, it was only the face of Jesus, nothing else that was damaged. I share this story because it captures the tragic reality of what happens when human sin reveals the breakdown of politics. Political failure is not unique to America because human sin is not unique to American politics. In all times and all places, there is an inevitable sense that power, greed, corruption, status, moral failing and compromise all infect the waters of politics. It is not that it is inevitable. There are, of course, many bright patches of hope where human creativity, ingenuity, and goodness press for change. But now, in our political cycle of 2020, like any other year, we are filled with reminders that we have not much progressed beyond 1963, or even beyond the words of Revelation written under the shadow of the politics of Caesar. And when human sin plays out in the political cost of bombings, of terrorism, of oppression, or violence, it is often the innocent, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the children, such as these four young women who carry the cost. We cannot engage in politics if we aren't ready for such stories of the breakdown of human sin. Yet it is precisely such a story that prepares us for the outpouring of wrath that we will encounter in Revelation 16. If you've been tracking with Revelation's apocalyptic visions, John is about to offer us a vision of God's final judgments that are either chronologically or symbolically placed to express the fullness and completion of God's pouring out of his wrath. We began in Revelation 6 with the judgment of the seven seals. These were followed in Revelation 11 with seven judgments of the trumpets. Now we are at the third and final sequence of seven judgments, the seven bowls. You'll notice that some of these judgments in the seven bowls are similar to ones that have come before, yet they continue to do a ratcheting up. There are parallels that you're once again going to hear to the ten plagues God poured out on Egypt. I think this is intentional. There's a certain sense in which God's wrath is being poured out on a world that has oppressed God's people. Yet there is also a new finality in this sequence that we're going to explore. So let's turn now to Revelation 16 verse 1. This is what it says. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The image of bowls drawn from the temple likely reflect urns that would have been storing incense used in temple worship. These bowls, we're now told, are going to be poured out, and the contents of these bowls are going to be God's wrath on the earth. This is what verse 2 says. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people, who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The ironic twist is that those who had previously been secure because they had marked their bodies with the mark of the beast now have their bodies painfully marked, ironically, by ugly and festering sores. The second bowl continues in verse 3. This is what it says. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. Once again, like the previous trumpets, the sea, a central source of economic wealth, food, and travel, is turned instead to a source of death. The third bowl is going to continue in verse 4 to 7. This is what it says. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people 
and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. As I've said most episodes, I realize that culturally, God's judgment is uncomfortable. We have for many reasons shied away from a God of wrath and prefer instead to embrace the God of grace and love. The Bible, however, doesn't seem to make the same distinctions. The Bible seems quite comfortable embracing both God's wrath and God's grace and denying neither. Yet this scene powerfully captures the drama that's going to occur when God's wrath comes. An angel who we mysteriously are told is in charge of the waters is going to cry out this phrase, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, for they have shed the blood of your holy people, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. The word for shed here is the same word for poured out that has been used of the bulls. The angel, therefore, is standing as a witness to all those whose blood has been poured out and says it is right and true that God now pours out wrath and makes those who shed that blood now drink blood. As I've often repeated, I don't know what the fulfillment of judgments like this in Revelation will look like, whether we should interpret it literally as an event in the future or past, or whether symbolically it describes the way God avenges those who abuse and kill God's people. But I do think of those little girls at 16th Street Baptist preparing to serve in their youth day service whose blood was poured out. And I lean towards the confidence that however God responds, it will in fact be just. The bowls continue. The fourth bowl will affect the sun and allow the sun to scorch people with fire. A very ominous bowl that comes a little closer to home in light of continuing climate change and the wildfires of this past summer. John notes in verse 9, that those who experienced the burning of the sun cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and it plunged the kingdom into darkness. Again, we're told people were agonized, and again we're told they refused to repent. The sixth angel in the sixth bowl is going to involve Euphrates, that great and massive flowing river that borders the Roman Empire and the dreaded Parthians who keep coming up, the nation to the east that the Romans always kept a wary eye on. This bowl in verse 12 says, It will dry up the great river Euphrates to prepare a way for the kings from the east. An attentive Jewish listener would notice that God had once before dried up a portion of a different river, the Jordan River, so that Israel could enter the promised land from the east. Yet here, God dries up the river Euphrates so that the invading forces will come not for victory, but in judgment. So next, we're now in verses 13 to 14. A strange scene is going to emerge that I'll read to you. This is Revelation 16, verses 13 to 14. It says, Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So symbolically, whenever something comes from the mouth in the ancient world, it normally represented propaganda of some kind. So if we follow that logic here, the unholy trinity, as they're sometimes called, of dragon, beast, and false prophet, are spreading the message of their victory through signs and wonders in order to rally up the people for battle on the great day of God Almighty. While demonic frogs might seem strange to us and stretch the imagination, 
powerful propaganda campaigns by totalitarian leaders are quite easy to imagine. John is therefore warning the church here in the bowls, beware of the frogs coming from your political leaders' mouths that smack of propaganda. Beware of that unholy trinity of dragon, beast, and prophet who will inevitably make claims to the throne. We're approaching now a pretty big finale in the seventh bowl that's known to us and in pop culture as Armageddon. Here's what's tricky about Revelation, though. So far, we've already had several scenes of culminating judgment that seem to sound like an end scene. So one happened earlier in Revelation 6 when it came to the sixth seal. If you remember, we were told the kings and the princes and generals and the rich and the mighty and everyone else hid in caves and among rocks because in the sixth seal, the stars in the sky fell to earth, the heavens receded like a scroll, and every mountain and island were removed from its place. That was Revelation 6, verses 14 to 15. But then, interestingly, in the following chapter, if you recall, Revelation 7 depicts 144,000 saints dramatically declaring what sounds like their imminent victory, even as in Revelation 7, we're assured that in this moment, God is wiping away every tear. If you're taking what judgment and victory is being declared in Revelation 6 and 7, it would sound like the story is over. Yet later, the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 will also declare a very end-time sounding scene where the temple in heaven is open, Jesus' victory is declared as having come, and then we're told flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm all occur at the same time. These are the very signs that we're about to find in Armageddon. And so one is forgiven for being confused as to what the order and sequencing of events is and why it seems as if end-time judgments are closing the scene repeatedly instead of following chronologically into a natural building moment. In a nutshell, how do you make sense of these layered, crescendoing, yet often similar seams? My instinct is to be quite loose in how strictly chronological these events are unfolding. Yet, I am humbled to note, when you hear the description of Armageddon we're about to read, it seems intentionally distinct from what comes before. It seems final. So here's how John describes it. This is Revelation 16, verses 17 to 21. After we're told the kings of the earth have all been assembled together by the unholy trinity of dragon, beast, and prophet. This is what Revelation 16, verses 17 to 21 says. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since mankind had been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Clearly, this is a devastating scene, one that seems to culminate or perhaps contain the previous climactic moments of judgment. You get why Armageddon has dominated cultural tales. The great assembly of kings shaking their fists in frustration at God only to have the very earth convulse under their feet and hundred-pound hailstones drop from the sky. As humans and in politics, we sense this need for a finale, for a showdown, a final scene of judgment, and the Bible does not disappoint. 
Armageddon is the last gasp of creaturely resistance against their creator, fueled by those dark forces of dragon, beast, and prophet. Yet still, Revelation is not quite done in its unveiling. So if that's Revelation 16, Revelation 17 is going to turn to a new mythical scene, laden with imagery and symbolism. It is as if, in giving us the inevitable judgment of the nations, Revelation wants to pause and examine more closely why, why Babylon deserved the judgment she just received in the outpouring of God's bowls. So this is what Revelation 17, 1-2 is going to say. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So earlier, if you recall, we were given a vision of a pregnant woman who was to give birth to the Messiah and likely represented the faithful remnant who were birthing new life even as they were nourished in the wilderness during the Great Tribulation. The pregnant woman, however, is now contrasted with the vision of a great prostitute who sits by many waters. The many waters quite literally refer to Babylon, which was located on the Euphrates, or likely, as we'll soon see, to Rome, which also was located on a river, the Tigris. We're told this prostitute had committed adultery with the kings of the earth. Some commentators point out here that it's helpful to keep in mind kings is not only a term for nation rulers, but would have applied to any wealthy government officials, such as Herod, for example, who ruled over regions of Rome. Thus, the corrupting influence of this prostitute who has wooed these kings, these government rulers, into various regions is spread across the economic and political power structure. As a result of this adultery, we're told all of the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with her wine. So the imagery only gets more vivid and disturbing from here. This is what John says in verses 3 to 5. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. It said, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So it's interesting in this vision that Isaiah had prophesied earlier in Isaiah 11 that judgment would come on Babylon from the wilderness. So now John is taken into this scene in which the prostitute is paraded in a parody of wealth. She's dressed in purple and scarlet. She's carrying these glittering, pretentious jewels. And she holds this mysterious golden cup in her hand that we're told is filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Interestingly, in John's day, there was a tradition in various Roman cultures that Rome actually had a secret name known only to the imperial priesthood, which many thought was the word amor, which is Roma in Latin spelled backwards. Yet amor also in Latin is the word for love. Yet if John is aware of this tradition, he's parroting it well here. The secret name for Rome is not actually love, but instead is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes, who find themselves hungering in adultery for the love that they cannot ever be satisfied by. Yet if this is a strong indictment against Babylon and against Rome, the most horrifying image is saved for last. This is coming from verse 6 of chapter 17. It says this, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. 
When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. If you had been an ancient reader or listener to Revelation, you likely would have audibly gasped at this reveal. Even a pagan would be disgusted by such a vivid description of cannibalism, the blood of God's holy people that is being drunk by the woman. The wine, it turns out, which the prostitute has intoxicated the inhabitants of the world, is actually the blood of God's very saints that now fill the cup the prostitute carries. It is a damning pronouncement that, like all of Revelation, is pulling back the curtain on what the powers of Babylon have actually been up to this whole time, where the prostitute, working through the great cities and the great nations of the world, though her appearance may shimmer, has a cup that is filled with blood that she is drinking down and becoming drunk on as she persecutes, oppresses, and kills the vulnerable in her midst. Intoxication and adultery are the very means by which Babylon has been wooing the wealthy and the powerful, yet this vision highlights the grotesque means by which Babylon continues her seduction. Her followers have only been drinking blood, John damningly reveals, and the cannibalism is meant to disgust us. Understandably, John says he was greatly astonished in my English translation, which in the Greek could read more like, I was horrified and disgusted. It's hard to even imagine how impactful the scene would have been for John's ancient listeners as they pondered the implications of the city they knew well, Rome. Much as today with our great cities, Rome sparkled in the ancient mind as the jewel of the ancient world with many magnificent buildings and palaces and temples that evoked awe, wonder, and delight. Rome's power seemed unending, her rule seemed unquestionable, and her status seemed irrevocable. Yet when John is taken up into the heavenly perspective, by heavenly beings, he begins to see Rome truly as she is, a prostitute garbed in gouty clothes, seducing the rich and powerful to intoxicate the inhabitants of the earth with the blood of the saints. It is at this point that I must draw the obvious and contemporary parallel. I am proud to be an American. I love many of the ideals that America stands for. But when I read Revelation 17, like many others, I'm drawn to note that America today looks far more like Babylon, the mother of prostitutes, than she does like the vulnerable pregnant woman nourished by God in the wilderness. I do not say this with spite or because I do not love America. But as a Christian, I must consider that the politics of Jesus invites me to prophetically challenge the politics of Caesar on both sides of the aisle, left and right, when they more closely look like the prostitute attempting to intoxicate her followers and seduce the kings of the earth. In 2018, a Catholic scholar by the name of Patrick Deneen wrote a book provocatively titled Why Liberalism Failed. The title, of course, is meant to make us agitated. The Deneen will quickly point out he's not attacking lowercase l liberalism by the way of the Democratic Party or progressive political ideals, but instead capital L liberalism as the ideology in contrast to fascism and communism. In the 1980s, it seemed perhaps that liberalism had won in outlasting fascism and communism. But now as we enter the 2020s, Deneen argues that perhaps it's better to realize that liberalism has failed. So what is liberalism? The definition of liberalism as an ideology, embraced in the founding of America 250 years ago, quite simply believes that individuals should be autonomous agents, given the freedom of self-expression as long as they pledge allegiance to the state and to the market. This definition of liberalism as an ideology 
notes that both Democrats and Republicans are both liberals in a traditional sense. Yet perhaps one could note that Republicans, as classical liberals, prefer a free market and small government, while progressive liberals, those often aligned with the Democratic Party, view government as an instrument for the expansion of individual autonomy. These are obviously important differences, but Deneen argues that they are more like intramural competitions than they are actually separate agendas. Despite our differences, both parties agree that fundamentally, liberalism is the optimal political arrangement for humanity, and thus America has been guided by the ideals of liberalism even as it has waged war between its two party factions. How then can Deneen claim that liberalism has failed? Well, to Deneen, liberalism intoxicates, yes, I use that word intentionally, its constituents with the promise of autonomous freedom. It's going to promise either freedom from involvement by the state for Republicans or freedom from the pressures of the market by the Democrat. Yet this freedom that liberalism offers, Deneen says, is always an illusion. In liberalism, the state and the market are always interlocked and in charge. Ironically, the promise that liberalism offers, that individuals can be free, masks the disempowerment, the fragmentation, and resentment that comes from a growing state and a growing market, both of which force individuals to submit, either through their growing dependence, growing isolation, or growing need. Deneen is essentially arguing that the emperor has no clothes when it comes to liberalism. While liberalism extends all the promises of individual self-expression, in truth, liberal states like the United States of America rely on a powerful state government and a powerful market, both of which don't actually care about the individual's needs, the individual's desires, or profiting all individuals equally. Deneen is going to note several points where the problem in liberalism is located. Liberalism has not resulted in a just and equitable society. But instead, it's precisely in our educational systems that we see the growing gaps of wealth disparity, where those with privilege become more privileged and those with wealth become more wealthy, while those without education and those without wealth are left stranded in a liberal state. They're not actually there as free individuals, but instead operate as cogs in a state and market machine. Yet even if you happen to get lucky and find yourself possessing a little bit of education or a little bit of wealth, Deneen asks, have you really won liberalism's game? If you're working a 60-hour work week, a large 401k that you work your whole life to enjoy only at the end, if this insistence on the freedom to express yourself actually leaves you instead with crippling debt, a dead-end job, a degree you no longer want to use, and a mounting sense of depression and anxiety, are you truly free? In a denouncement quite close to home in light of the previous election cycle, Deneen notes that liberalism, while presenting itself in favor of the individual, actually always draws our attention away from localized community, localized government, localized policies, and instead dominates the news cycle with national-level leadership that actually ironically neglects the needs and priorities of individuals. So we spend inordinate amounts of time and energy following the antics of two presidential candidates while all the while our local policies, our local communities, our local individual needs are ironically ignored. Surely, if you were to read Deneen's book, there'd be some aspects you'd disagree with. He's presenting a very hard and contrarian perspective that liberalism has failed. You would be right to push back on Deneen, arguing that surely liberalism, expressed in the American political experiment, 
has in fact offered several significant gains, and even now is benefiting most of us who finds ourselves American citizens. Yet I bring up Deneen's bold critique because I think it holds some weight and offers a bit of an unveiling of its own. Are you so sure you want to trust yourself to the blind forces of the state or to the market that have no idea who you really are and don't actually care about the life you hope to lead? Do you really think any party, Republican or Democrat, truly has your best interest in mind, let alone the best interest of an entire nation? Can liberalism, with its promises of autonomy and freedom, expressed as either conservative or progressive, actually follow through on its promises? Or does liberalism contain its own wine and seduction of adultery, promising to intoxicate only to reveal in horror the many underbellied problems of our country's capitalism, our consumerism, our greed and ravenous hunger for more power, more wealth, and more security. I do not pretend to hold all the answers here. I instead offer John's apocalyptic concerns to the real-time politics each of us in Western societies are trying to navigate. I am humbled, but I am not without hope. In Revelation 17, the angel warns John, that these ten mysterious kings have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. This is the constant threat, that our politics swear allegiance to Caesar and behind Caesar to the influence of the dragon instead of holding fast in our allegiance to the politics of Jesus. Yet, the angel says in verse 14 this stunning proclamation, they, these kings, will wage war against the Lamb But the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. What I think John is saying, and what he would say to us, is that we are not called to put our trust in liberalism, in markets or in states, in kings or in economies, but we instead place our trust in the Lamb, the Lamb who in fact is the Lord of lords and King of kings because with the Lamb will be salvation for his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Yet if each episode I've asked, how do we live with public embodied actions, the politics of Jesus, that seek the good and flourishing of our cities and communities, this episode I want to end by reflecting again on lament. Specifically this episode, I want to encourage us to consider prophetic communal lament. This fascinating turn happens in the next chapter of Revelation, Revelation 18. This is coming after John has seen the prostitute on the beast. Another angel will appear. This is what Revelation 18, 1-3 says. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The king of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So this angel has now taken up the powerful tradition of prophetic lament, rooted back in the Psalms and especially the prophet of the ones who challenge and cry out against that which has grown corrupted. If you recall an earlier episode from our study of Job, lament is a form of the Psalms that cries out to God, addressing him and asking for mercy or calling for justice, calling for God to act in salvation in the present. And then ultimately, lament always concludes with a commitment to hope, 
a statement of faith and an acknowledgement that the psalmist or the prophet continues to trust in God. Prophetic lament, then, is a slight variation or perhaps expansion on some of the themes of lament we particularly find in the Psalms. Prophetic lament observes not just individual but communal trends and the societal upheaval that results as a corruption by sin of human politics. Prophetic lament looks with an open eye at failure and fallings that have occurred both within and without the people of God. And prophetic lament grieves over the loss and death that resulted because of these failings, even as it calls them to account that earthly power can no longer continue to perpetuate injustice. So as you read Revelation 18, you begin to hear and even learn this song. The song that the angel begins will be joined by other voices. The first refrain of fallen, fallen, fallen does not so much grieve the loss of Babylon, but grieves the drunkenness which the maddening wine of the prostitute has used to deceive her inhabitants. The song of lament is going to continue in verse 4 to 8 with a different voice that's going to join the song. This is what it says. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given, pay her back double for what she has done, pour her a double portion from her own cup, give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen, I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. This other voice from heaven, which many commentators think might be Jesus' voice himself, matches the voice of the first angel in joining in their song. It is not so much a grief now, but a calling that this voice gives. Come out of her, my people. Come out of her so that you will not share in her sins. This is the prophetic task. It's the urgency of the prophet that sees coming destruction, that sees the death waiting for any who drink from the prostitute's cup. The prostitute's boasting is in vain, even as she gives herself her own double portion, even as she ignores the torment and grief that her glory and luxury has brought her. Her boasting is in vain. One day her plagues will overtake her. So the song in Revelation 18 is going to take an interesting turn. We're surprised to hear in verse 9 from the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared in her luxury. Now these very kings see the smoke of Babylon's burning, and we're told in verse 9 that they weep and mourn over her. We're told next in verse 11 that similar to the kings, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over Babylon. Later in verse 14, the merchants acknowledge, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. This is the swells of beautiful interludes that culminate in crashing crescendos of grief. Finally, we're told in verse 17 to 18, every sea captain and sailor will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? That they will throw dust on their heads, and they join in the mourners, crying out, Woe, woe to you, great city, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on God's people. Commentators point out here that the scene of this song marches along almost like a funeral dirge. Perhaps that's even the tune to bear in mind for the prophetic lament. There's this steady pace 
a deadly silence, an echoing grief. The rich and the powerful and the merchants all gather together for the funeral procession as they watch in shock and sing in grief at the death of their great Babylon, the prostitute on which they had depended for so long. The song is then going to thunder to a closing scene. I'll read it in full so that you can hold the monumental weight of its grief. Here's verse 21 to 24. It says this, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. I'm struck as I read Revelation 18 at the courage of prophetic lament to look into the future and proclaim, even imagine the funeral song of a wealthy city that at its writing was still very much in charge. As John's readers would have listened, none of these judgments by God would yet have come to pass. In fact, the demise of Rome likely seemed impossible. The leaders and the powerful, the merchants and the sailors all looked secure in John's day. Much as Jeremiah's warnings about the fall of Jerusalem were derided by comfortable leaders currently in positions of power, prophetic lament is almost always disdained, dismissed, and ignored. Still, the church is given a vision here of a song that they can learn to sing, the song of prophetic lament. In Revelation 18, this song decries the abuses of those who have prospered off the lowly, the wealthy who have benefited off the weak, the greedy who have taken what was not rightfully theirs, and the powerful who have oppressed the vulnerable. Prophetic lament denounces these forces and calls both the church and the world to repent. If only the church could wisely learn to sing such a song, not just to shame or to complain, but to sing a song that pushes back against the structures of Caesar, even as it powerfully proclaims Caesar's inevitable demise. Yet I can't help but shake there is a strange tenderness to this song. As with most of Revelation, though judgment is coming, there is this melody of mercy and compassion, perhaps even a genuine grief, that Babylon failed at what might have been her noble call. I love particularly verse 23 that I just read where it said, Your merchants were the world's important people, but by your magic spell the nations were instead led astray. Prophets always find themselves a part of the very systems they are challenging. They cannot denounce with pride or perhaps even anger. Instead, the most powerful prophetic laments are those that always long for the good of what might have been, always leave the coming judgment in the hands of the Lord. Prophetic lament is no easy task. It is a difficult song to learn and an even more challenging song to sing. Yet to end practically this episode, I can't help but wonder what kind of public good you and I in a small gathering, or perhaps even your whole church, could do by holding a service of prophetic lament, where stories are gathered of the oppressed, much like our prayer protests. Yet in these services, there's more space for grief and more emphasis on trust. For all its politics, Revelation is far more focused on the coming vindication of Jesus' return than on our present ability to establish perfect justice. We will always live proximate. 
And so sometimes it will be more appropriate to grieve as we wait and hope and trust. Perhaps such prophetic lament could be applied to local policies, like civil corruption, or like local injustices, such as housing disparities. Perhaps the plight of abortion, or racism, or any number of other issues could be publicly gathered and expressed through a service of prophetic lament. What would the politics of Jesus stir you to lament? Where would the politics of Jesus direct your prophetic song? Yet how would you also be invited to trust in that beautiful melody of mercy that God continues to sing over you and all his people? Let's lean in for just one more moment here, though. In case you haven't noticed, I've been trying my best to lean in and face head-on controversial political topics of our day with the text of the Bible even though, of course, to do so often disappoints both sides. If racism, a conversation we addressed in episode 3, has dominated our political airwaves this past election cycle, it seems, at least to me in the circles I'm in, that the issue of abortion has often come up as well. Abortion will likely always be highly contested. However, Christians often get trapped politically with abortion and becoming one-issue voters. Now, I actually have a lot of time for this dilemma. Christians have historically been largely united on seeing abortion as a violation of the image-bearing dignity of all creatures, and have sought, with varying degrees of success, to elevate in their pleas how fragile and vulnerable a life in the womb is, yet how precious each of those lives is to their Heavenly Father and the true source of their creation, God. If you walk with Christians here into this logic, it becomes tragic that in Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Court case that legalized abortion nationally, something like 60 million abortions have taken place in the United States alone since 1973. Many pro-lifers have equated this to a legalized genocide, and thus these Christians are so passionate and view this issue as so pressing from a governmental, political perspective that they've been willing to couple their support to the Republican Party, even when in 2016 and 2020, That support was for Donald Trump, whose highly publicized lifestyle and moral failings seemed to go against a majority of the values the evangelical community had advocated for. This issue then of abortion has been central in election cycles because Republicans press that for abortion to be overturned, or at least limited, Christians need to support Republican presidential candidates who in turn will elect pro-life judicial seats and Supreme Court justices so that they can enact legislation and limit government funding for abortion clinics. It's a very compelling and yet confusing situation for most Christians to find themselves in, and this has often led for Republicans to lean Christian since the 1980s. I'll lay my cards on the table here. I personally am passionately pro-life. I am pro-life out of the foundation of my commitment to the scriptures and the Judeo-Christian ethic that sees human life, all human life, as having inherent dignity such that it should be protected, particularly when it is vulnerable. I am incredibly proud of the rich history of the church, both ancient and modern, that has often led the charge, even as it has often failed, in caring for widows and orphans. And today, that support looks like the incredible Christians who give their lives to support foster children, adoption, and single mothers. My grandma is one of the most incredible saints that I know, and she, out of her Christian faith, continues to volunteer time at a pro-life clinic that supports pregnant teenage mothers who can't afford health care. And my grandma has been known to drive these single mothers to go get groceries for their children 
to take them to school, to help out with sporting events and sports practices. To me, this is that real-life, practical politics that my grandma is living to truly love her neighbors, to truly serve her community, and to truly demonstrate what the politics of Jesus would be all about. But I say all of this out of concern, that as many have noted, when Christians are forced to confirm allegiance to a party based on one policy, even oppressing an urgent policy like the life of an unborn child, I grow concerned that we are submitting to the politics of Caesar, even for a noble cause, rather than continuing to swear our allegiance only to Jesus as Lord and God. Even further, I think what can often get lost for those who are passionate about the politics of pro-life is the very real and complex realities of those who have already had an abortion. Every contested political issue is complex. Maybe the abortion was done in secret. Maybe it was done in shame. Maybe it was done without a care in the world. But these are, in fact, real women facing the very real and very overwhelming circumstances of their life that Christians have often neglected to listen to or understand. As a result, our rhetoric begins to sound a lot more like aggression, bitterness, and condemnation rather than sounding like the song of prophetic lament. I think the pro-life movement needs more Christians like my grandma on the ground, living out the politics of Jesus and the embodied actions of foster care, support for single mothers in our communities, and a consistent all-of-life ethic that values the human dignity of all people. But I also think the pro-life movement needs to learn to sing the song of prophetic lament, one that does more weeping than shouting, one that holds in tenderness a culture that has chosen to value autonomy over dependency, freedom over sacrifice, a culture we all participate in and benefit from, and a culture that God alone can intervene and judge. Yet such lament might even find the tender notes of mercy. Mercy especially for the women who are faced with the overwhelming choice between an abortion and a life they otherwise feared would spiral out of control. May we love and pray for these women as we see ourselves in them. May we love and pray for the men who are so often missing from the picture when it comes to conversations of abortion. May we in Christ resist injustice and sometimes protest with prayer societal evils, but may we especially here, over the issue of abortion, learn to sing the song of prophetic lament. Now, speaking of children, the vulnerable and prophetic lament. I began this episode with the story of 16th Street Baptist. If you were to go to 16th Street Baptist in Birmingham, Alabama today, you would notice that its walls have been repaired and its stained glass restored. But the most notable window you would observe was actually gifted to the church by a Welsh artist named John Petz. Petz was listening on the radio when he heard the news of the 1963 bombing come across his Welsh radio station's airwaves. He recalled his reaction, saying this, As a father, I was worried by the death of the children. As a craftsman, I was horrified at the smashing of all those windows. And I thought to myself, what could I do about all of this? Petz was moved, I would say, to sing his own song of prophetic lament at the injustices that he observed. So he decided to create a new window, expressing both sorrow and hope for the church. Selecting the words of Christ in Matthew 25, 40, which say, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. The window Petz created says hauntingly at the bottom, You do it to me. 
think this is a beautiful ode that captures the other stained glass in which the children's figure remains, even as it is the face of Christ that was blasted out by the bombing that occurred. This is precisely Petz's protest. It's a protest that sees four young girls slain as an assault on the very body of Christ. Yet the hope comes in Petz's stained glass in the figure of a dark-skinned Jesus, hanging in a swirl of blue, which was meant to evoke the waters that firemen hose civil rights protesters with. This dark-skinned Jesus is hanging on a stable and sure white glassed cross. Yet my favorite part is that in this Jesus, one hand, even as his body curves, is pressed up on the top right-hand corner of the frame, almost like Jesus is pressing up in a way resisting the injustices that are coming down against the window and on the world itself. This is Jesus' prophetic resistance to all of the corruption, all of the brokenness expressed through that 1963 bombing. Yet on the left side of the window, Jesus' left hand is extended towards you and it's open. It's offered to the world as a sign of Jesus' own forgiveness, even a forgiveness that would bear on Jesus' own body the curse and the sin of brokenness and injustice that looks like four innocent girls whose bodies are buried beneath the rubble. Yet still Jesus extends this hand. This is the lamb we follow, the one whose song we are all slowly but surely learning to sing. It is a song of prophetic lament over a world that is broken, but it is not a song without hope, as our crucified Lord hanging on that cross resists himself the forces of sin and injustice and death while extending with the other hand the very hand of forgiveness to us. May we each learn to sing such songs. May we stand as prophets against the injustices of Babylon, even as we extend our own songs of forgiveness through the loving embrace of Jesus Christ. This has been The Burning Word with John Prine. Until next time, grace and peace.